Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I am here with my colleague, Ashley Morgan. Ashley is a licensed mental health counselor with Employee and Family Resources. Ashley, welcome to Emotion Well. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk about LGBTQ plus um, and just kind of the various different things that we see um, and the kind of the barriers and struggles that we have in kind of society and in mental health. Yeah, well, we did a webinar in June and I thought the content was just very interesting, very helpful, and just in general, you know, information that should be, you know, more publicly broadcast, right, or, you know, mm-hmm. accessible to people. And so I thought by putting uh, this this topic in our rotation of emotion well episodes, it could be, you know, one way to be part of the solution, right, and just kind of educating and, and creating awareness and information. So go ahead and share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. Okay, so um, I'm about to throw a lot of labels at you, but these are all kind of things that I'll go over a little bit later. Um, So in terms of my gender identity and pronouns, uh, I identify as a cisgender female, and my pronouns are she, her, her. Um, In terms of kind of my romantic sexual orientation, um, I identify as panromantic, asexual, and polyamorous. So like I said, a lot of different labels, but they're all things that I'll go over. Um, Yes. But that's kind of where I stand in terms of my identity within the LGBTQ plus community. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So when we had the webinar in June, you did kind of a general overview of LGBTQ plus. Um, and so do you want to just kind of go through letter by letter um, for, for people who maybe have seen this, you know, term, but always kind of wondered, you know, what does that mean? Or what do those letters stand for? Because I think a lot of people know, but there's probably just as many people who are who are unaware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of LGBTQ+, um, I'll kind of start off letter, letter by letter. Um, basically, it's just an acronym for the various identities that fall under the umbrella. Um, so the L stands for lesbian, G is for gay, B is for bisexual, T is for transgender, Q is for queer or questioning. And then the plus is all of the other different identities that just at this point, adding them to the acronym would make it incredibly long. Yes. Yes. So when you introduced yourself, uh, you said you were cisgender, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So explain that because I, I feel like that is something that is more commonly, you know, seen and, and heard when people introduce themselves. So can you just kind of explain what that means for people? Most definitely. So with cisgender, basically, this is um, the term that we utilize when people identify um, with their gender identity that aligns with their biological sex. So I identify as a female, um, which aligns to my biological sex of female. Um, Transgender or um, non-binary, those kind of labels is where we get into either their gender identity does not align with their biological sex um, or that they identify as moving fluidly between the two. Okay. So most people are cisgender. Yeah. The majority of people would identify as cisgender. Okay. Um, 
we are seeing an uptick in transgender youth um, just because the label is now more readily available and readily understood. Yeah. Um, but so let's yes, talk about that. Uh, and without revealing your age, but when you mm-hmm. were going through, you know, middle school, high school, let's just say elementary mm-hmm. school, middle school, high school, um, I'm 40. So I was in high school in the late nineties. I graduated Mm -hmm. in 2000 and, you know, this was not anything that was really coming up. I mean, there, there was starting to be more kind of awareness and information around LGBTQ plus, but I wouldn't say it was something that was commonly, you know, talked about, or there wasn't this um, question on forms, like how do you identify People certainly weren't using pronouns 20 plus years ago. So talk to us a little bit about this timeline and how we've kind of progressed to where we are today, where people are starting to feel more comfortable and um, starting to be more open about their gender identity and how they want others to to view them and the pronouns that they wish to use. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm actually 29. So I went to, you know, uh, high school, middle school, 2000 to 2010. I graduated in 2011. Um, and we really saw in, in my perspective of my experience, um, you know, we did see more and more individuals, you know, kind of identifying as LGBTQ plus, um, transgender was a little more uncommon just because there was still a lot of fear, um, of the stigma and retribution and how, you know, um, people were going to kind of see that person. Um, so it's not something that I, I necessarily saw a ton of. Um, I would argue that pronouns have really become more important within maybe the last five to 10 years mm-hmm. um, is, is kind of where we've seen that uptick. Um, just because, you know, it, it's okay to normalize pronouns. It's okay normalizing how you want to be referred to. Um, a lot of times in our society, unfortunately, you're either cisgender or heterosexual until proven otherwise. Uh Um, That's the underlying assumption, Um, which is really harmful when you do have youth or individuals that don't identify as that. And so that's where we get into kind of the coming out process and a lot of the fears and just other things that kind of are barriers for coming out and kind of being able to live as your authentic self. Yeah. I remember when Ellen came out, it was Mm -hmm. the cover of, I don't remember if it was Time or Newsweek magazine, but I remember that being such a big deal. And, and that was well over, gosh, that had to be close to 25 years ago. I mean, she was Mm -hmm. already an established actor and had a show. Uh, But yeah, the the coming out process, um, or just I guess the, the shift in the number of people coming out or feeling comfortable coming out, because talk to us a little bit about that. Like, it just seems like more people are starting to be more comfortable coming out and maybe mm-hmm. at younger ages. And do you attribute that to society's shift in acceptance or an increase in awareness and identity exploration where people are going, oh, you know what? Actually, I, I have felt maybe that I don't fit that cisgender um, you know, definition. And, and now I'm, I'm comfortable or I'm able to identify. How do you think that has kind of changed in the last, let's just say 10 years since you were out of high school and have kind of grown into your adulthood? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So I think it's kind of a mixture of, uh, of various things. I think that it is kind of society's um, acceptance or, or awareness, you know, that there are more than just heterosexual and gay, um, right. or that there, there's more labels or things that nuances, if you would, um, that kind of go under the umbrella. Um, and then I think that it's also just, you know, with that awareness coming to terms with, you know, we are really doing a disservice to our youth, our, you know, older individuals by not allowing them to live authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a very stressful and, you know, kind of, in my experience, miserable time when you're not able to kind of be who you want to be, um, you know, kind of something, I'll, I'll go a little bit into my kind of coming out story a little bit just yeah. because it's a, a common experience, I think, for a lot of people. Um, you know, I started questioning kind of my sexual orientation around, oh, probably 13, 14 years old. Um, and I was absolutely terrified to come out to my family. Um, I didn't actually come out to my family until I was 26. So about three years ago. Yeah. Um, just because the fear was really there of, okay, like, how are they going to react? Are they going to disown me? Are they going to kick me out? Mm -hmm. Like, are they going to tell me that I'm being ridiculous because I'm only 14 and I don't know anything? Yeah. Like where, what, what's going to come out of their, their minds and their mouths? Um, it was easier to kind of go through this process with my friends than it was with my family. Um, just yeah. because the feelings of debilitating fear were really there. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I think now as we're moving kind of to being a little more progressive in some aspects, um, you know, more and more parents or more and more families um, are kind of recognizing that, you know, that, that this is a process and we don't all necessarily stick to those, you know, heterosexual cisgender labels and that by either outwardly, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you know, spreading kind of um, the, the fear of coming out that we're doing a lot of harm to the people that are experiencing these, um, these challenges and these, these feelings of questioning. Yeah. Uh, so talk about that as it relates to mental health and, you know, some of the, you mentioned the word, you know, fear and I was afraid. And so to me, that's, you know, a direct link to, you know, you probably had a lot of anxiety about, you know, living authentically. Right. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so talk to us a little bit about that connection between mental health and, you know, this process of, you know, identifying and coming out and, and living authentically. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned the anxiety. Um, I've had anxiety since I was nine, but I really saw it racket, kind of rocket up when Mm -hmm. I was going through the coming out process. It was so much worse. Um, And and we've seen that a lot um, with LGBTQ plus and kind of mental health and the the correlation that we see. Um, We are seeing an increased risk of mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, You know, many of the members of the LGBTQ plus community, especially younger members, um, experience mental health issues and substance use disorders due to their experiences of discrimination, shame, traumatic events. Um, You know, statistically, we see about one third of people who identify within the community experience mental illness, which is an astonishing 60% more than heterosexual individuals. Wow. So you can see it's a, a significant increase or a significant risk um, for 
kind of the the experience of LGBTQ plus and kind of the impacts on their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do see that, you know, people who are LGBTQ plus are two to three times more likely to have long-term psychological or emotional problems due to prejudice, harassment, discrimination. Um, we see a lot of PTSD um major depression suicidal ideation these are all things that you know we see increases in um and and then you know you throw in substance use disorder which you know ties into that people in the community um lgbt plus adults they're 56 percent more likely to develop an alcohol use disorder so you know that's kind of those statistics are pretty telling yes Um, so you're a licensed mental health counselor and do you, you know, do, do you work with a lot of LGBTQ plus clients or, you know, is this something if you were um, experiencing mental health consequences as it relates to identifying as LGBTQ plus, if you were to seek a counselor, would you want to find someone who has experience with this area? Could any kind of mental health counselor kind of talk you through the anxiety, the trauma, maybe the depression, or would you want to find someone who has a better understanding of this specific um, set of circumstances? Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's difficult in some ways to answer that question because I think it comes down to personal preference of every individual looking for the services. Okay. Um, you know, in my personal experience, I have preferred to seek out um, professionals that do either identify within the community or um, they are, you know, informed allies, um, you know, just because it can decrease a lot of those barriers to sharing. Um, I've had a lot of particularly my adolescent clients that have come in and, you know, that was kind of one of the first things they'd ask is, you know, are you LGBTQ plus friendly um, or knowledgeable? And, you know, the minute I said, you know, yeah, I'm actually a part of, you know, the community myself, you can see a visible relief kind of just in their eyes of like, okay, like I feel safe, Um, you know, because some, I mean, unfortunately counselors, just like anyone else, um, we're human, right? And we have our own biases yeah. and, you know, other things that we experience. And and the hope is that, you know, we won't have those experiences and we can keep those things separately, um, our own personal feelings versus, you know, those of our clients. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so we, we have seen and I've seen um, individuals, you know, within the community that have been seeking services and they have run into, you know, maybe a counselor that wasn't so empathetic or understanding um, or just didn't have the knowledge that they needed in order to kind of help them through whatever it is that they were experiencing, which can be in some terms detrimental because then they're less likely to seek out services in the future. Right. And I always think it's so important, you know, whatever the reason you're, you know, seeking counseling for, like, if you don't have a positive experience, you can try a different counselor, right? You can mm-hmm. try again. But like you said, sometimes the, the barrier now becomes, I didn't have a good experience. I don't want to go through that again. So I'm not going to, you know, even pursue talking to someone else. So I always mm-hmm. like to remind people of that. We did an episode with T. 
Tina about, you know, if you are working with a counselor and they're not a good fit, that doesn't mean that counseling isn't a good fit for you. It just means that you're not paired up with the right counselor. So I think that that would be an important reminder for, you know, people who, who want to talk to a counselor about their gender identity or their anxiety about coming out. If the first counselor they talk to doesn't seem supportive or informed or just the right fit, there, there are counselors that can be you know, Mm -hmm. that person for them. So I think it's important, Mm -hmm. whatever you're exploring counseling about, just to make sure you have a good fit. Uh, If I can ask a personal question, when you came out to your family at age 26, you said, uh, Mm -hmm. were they supportive? How did the conversation go? If whatever you're willing and comfortable to share? Yeah, no problem. Um, So it's funny, because um, my so when I came out to my parents, um, I had been a couple years before I had been dating a boy. Um, in college and my dad you know just typical you know stereotypical dad like you know I don't want you dating like you know whatever at this point I was like 22 by the Uh way Uh Um, so like I was like there's really no getting around it but okay and you know he kept just asking he's like can you just be a lesbian like that'd be so much easier and like that sounds terrible um but in in my dad like he he meant it as a joke and so, you know, I called my mom on the phone. I just kind of decided to risk the mandate off because I was just, I was like, you know, a lot of my not coming out was because, well, if I don't come out, if I'm not dating a girl, I don't have to come out, right? Right. Like, that's a bridge I don't even have to, like, have to, you know, kind of cross. Um, and I was like, you know, eventually I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's going to have to be a Band-Aid that's just ripped off. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I just decided one day, I was like, I'm just tired of living like this. Um, I'm tired of hiding, you know, a huge part of who I am. Um, you know, all of my friends know, but like my family is, is very important to me. And so um, I called my mom and I was talking to her and I was like, so you know how like dad, when I was dating, you know, um, this boy was like, can you just be a lesbian? Well, I kind of maybe might be. And she okay. just like, is like, what? And I'm like, I mean, I'm just saying I might be. And she's like, don't you dare put that on us. like you know and I was just like mom but you know she she was pretty you know supportive and they've been pretty supportive of me um generally speaking my grandparents were actually kind of offended that I hadn't come out earlier to them oh wow Um, interesting because they're a generation older than your parents and mm -hmm. almost like they were maybe more understanding or supportive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting and and it's funny because, you know, throughout college, throughout um, kind of my my professional career, I have made more and more friends that are LGBTQ plus, right? And so, um, you know, a lot of my deciding to come out at that point was because I had seen them interacting with my friends um, and, and you know, they hadn't really had an adverse reaction. They yeah. hadn't, you know, freaked out or anything like that. And, and over the years, um, you know, they still have a long way to go. Um, I'm not going to, you know, say they're perfect by any means, but, you know, they, they've come to understand it a lot more. Um, like I said, my grandparents were like, you know, kind of upset. They felt like I, I didn't trust them with it. Um, but, you know, we went through that process of like, no, that wasn't it. I was just really scared because I care a lot about you. And, you know, so they've, they've made it a point to kind of let me know, you know, they love me regardless. Like it doesn't matter, yeah. you know, any of that. But it, it's funny, my, um, I have a nine-year-old adopted sister and okay. she actually went to pride with me this year. Nice. Um, and that was a really fun experience. She had a great time. Um, she walked in the parade with my friend. Um, she, you know, got a, a pride flag and like 
uh, all kinds of different stuff like that. And so she had a really good time. Um, and so it was just, it was really nice to see kind of her, you know, getting exposed to the community, getting exposed to the different things um, and really seeing like who I am, you know, as her sister and yeah. what's a really big part of me. Yeah. I would imagine it, like you mentioned, you know, I didn't really want to live like this any longer. Like you just wanted to be authentic. And that's kind of the word that keeps popping up in my mind is being able to live authentically, mm-hmm. you know, be true to yourself. And I love that you are able to do that now and that you're including your family in that process. Uh, when mm-hmm. you introduced yourself, you said your romantic orientation was pansexual, polyamorous, and asexual. Yeah, so I'm pan romantic okay. or pan romantic. So can you yep. can you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, so romantic orientation can be very different than sexual identity. Okay. Um, so in terms of romantic identification, this is like who you are attracted to in a romantic sense. Okay. Um, so you know, I am pan romantic for me is you know basically gender doesn't matter. Okay. Gender really has no um, no bounds in who I find um, romantically attractive and who I would want to be involved with. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, um, there's a, you know, your sexual orientation, which is who you're attracted to sexually, who, you know, maybe feelings, romance, those things aren't attached. Uh-huh. Um, asexual is, I don't experience that. Um, I don't experience sexual uh, attraction. Um, it's something that, you know, from, probably when I first started questioning that I did, I just have never experienced, never understood. Um, Other people, you know, they don't have a difference in their romantic attraction versus their sexual orientation. You know, some, some people have that in one label Um, because I identify as asexual. I identify them separately because I still want a relationship. I still want the romantic connection. Um, I just don't necessarily care about the sexual you know, components of things. gotcha. Okay. Um, asexual, aromantic, those are um kind of the the ace spectrum things that we talk about. Um, those are more gosh, within like the last five years, I would say, um, are becoming more common. Um previously we didn't really understand that. Um uh, a lot of times um specifically youth um or young adults when they don't experience that sexual attraction or that like, oh, he's so hot, like, you know, type of, or, you know, like they're, yeah. they're super, super attractive, like, you know, feeling, they feel like they're broken. Uh-huh. They don't get it. They don't understand. So providing that label of asexual or aromantic um, and aromantic is they don't experience romantic attraction. Um, but having those labels can be really helpful because it's like, oh, I'm not broken. Like this is just, there, there's right. a whole subset of people that are like me. Um, but having the difference in, you know, those labels can be really helpful. A lot of it, like I said, is nuanced, um, you know, for each individual person. Some people just say, you know, Hey, I'm gay. And that's as far as they want to go. They don't Mm -hmm. care about the, the micro labels or anything like that. Um, in terms of polyamorous. So basically, um, we have monogamous and we have polyamorous, right. And this Mm -hmm. is very different than like polygamy. Um, but so monogamy is, you know, you're in a romantic or sexual um, relationship with just one person. Like it's, they're your person. They're the one person you turn to and they're the only person you want to be with. Um, 
which is fine. You know, we, the majority, I would say, I would say the polyamorous community is growing, but the majority of people identify as monogamous. Um, you know, they, they follow that track. Um, polyamorous is that you feel that you can experience, um, either romantic or sexual attraction to multiple people. Um, you know, so we see, you know, a lot of people in, um, various types of relationships because one relationship doesn't necessarily always provide everything that they need. Okay. Um, and this is like a consenting and conversation based, um, relationship structure. And is another common term for this an open relationship? I've heard. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So meaning Um, everyone is aware that, you know, there's no, mm -hmm. you know, pretending to be monogamous, but you're doing Mm -hmm. things on the side. It's, you know, everyone in Mm -hmm. the relationship dynamic, whether it's two people, three people, four people, they, they are aware that everyone kind of has that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. understanding. Okay. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's very, very, very consent based and based on communication. Okay. Um, because, you know, we see people all the time that, you know, try to say, well, oh, we're, we're in an open relationship or we're, you know, polyamorous, but like they haven't had that conversation or that consent from the other party. Right. Um, and, and, you know, like, I'm not going to put a blanket statement on it, but I would say, argue that at that point, you know, it, it gets into infidelity and cheating at that point. Right. If not everyone's aware. Right. Um, you know, so I think that the hard part with polyamory or, you know, like, um, kind of those types of relationships and relationship dynamics is it, it gets a bad rap. Um, you know, because, you know, monogamy is the primary mode of relationship dynamic that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see, I mean, we see like, um, a lot of different things about polygamy and like all these other things that have been like negative in the past. Um, and, and we superimpose that over polyamory, which they're not the same thing. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, if you identify as polyamorous, you, you, also experienced a lot of barriers there too. Okay. Thank you for describing all of that. Um, What resources are available? I mean, if, if you're, I'm just going to say, let's say you're 12 years old, 13 years old, this is an age where, you know, you're going through puberty, you are experiencing a lot of emotions, some related to your identity, you know, some related to your family dynamic, your relationships at school, your relationships with your siblings, let's say you're a 12 or 13 year old, and you are starting to question what would be, how could that individual access the support they need? So let's start with what that individual can do. And then we'll talk about how their family can support them if the family knows or observes that this could be maybe um, happening. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I always turn people to kind of just online resources first, um, or call, call lines or things like that. Um, there are several different, um, resources that you can go to. Um, the Trevor Project is a really great resource. Um, they provide a lot of information, um, just regarding kind of LGBTQ plus, but then also like, you know, like providing a lot of resources in terms of like, okay, like, what does this mean? Who can you reach out to? Um, They have trained counselors that you can reach out to and, you know, talk to if you feel like you need support, um, whether you're thinking about, you know, like suicide or just like having a lot of questions and a lot of, you know, like maybe downward spiraling or just different things that kind of um, come up with that. 
Um, they also have a really, really awesome resource center. Um, you can see like different topics that you want to kind of um, look through, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, mental health. Um, there's, there's a ton of different um, topics that you can check out. Um, they also just recently put out um, their national survey, survey on LGBTQ plus youth um, and mental health uh, for the last year. Um, so they cover a lot of different statistics and a lot of different kind of trends that they've noticed within um, LGBTQ plus youth in particular. Okay. Um, so that's a really good resource. Um, also, the CDC has a um, LGBTQ plus youth resources um, page. Um, so they provide um, kind of different different links, resources for um, both the youth or the individuals going through kind of the, the questioning process or their gender identity or whatever, but then also a lot of um, information for like friends, supporters, allies, stuff like that. Um, they also provide a lot of resources for educators, administrators, because those are the ones that tend to see the earliest um, kind of notes of different gender orientation, sexual identity, um, just because like they are with them the most. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and, and they see them interacting with their friends and, you know, all those things. Um, there are just there are a ton of resources out there uh, that tend to be really good. I would say anything that's .gov or .org um, typically is pretty, pretty well versed um, and established. But those, you know, there's also um, the GLAD network that they have resources as well. So those are kind of the three that I would say. Um, and we can link to those is, in the show notes so our listeners mm-hmm. can access um, yeah. Trevor Project, the GLAD Network, and the CDC um, pages quickly. And mm-hmm. and I know I looked at the Trevor Project website when you were on our webinar a couple of months ago, and it you know it, it wasn't a good website. So mm-hmm. thank you. And what about for the the parents or the family? Um, you know what types of support or resources or, you know, what, what would you say as a counselor, as a mental health therapist, you know, what are, what are, you know, supportive ways to, to help your, your child through this process? <clears throat> so I think the biggest thing is that on all, all of those websites, they do have parents tabs okay. and stuff like that. Um, you know, there are a lot of different books that, you know, you can, can go to and kind of read um, for, you know, kind of the experience or, or different things based on whether it's, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, you know, and, and seeing, okay, what are, are the things that would be, you know, good to provide the support to your kiddo or to, you know, the individual in your life that is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, um, I don't know what it sounds, I can't remember what it stands for right off the top of my head, but it's P-S-L-A-G. Um, they have a recommended reading list, um, you know, that kind of covers, you know, different experiences um, of kind of the parents of individuals that have come out um, okay. or that can be helpful. Um, there's also a million and one podcasts that are starting to come out in terms of kind of support. Um, whether it's parents talking about their kiddos experience and their kind of journey with supporting them um, or if it's you know other things like that 
Um, but I think I would argue that the biggest thing you can do, you know, as a parent or as someone who is, uh, you know, like their kiddo or, or someone they love is going through this experience is just being open and there, um, you know, and, and maybe being very aware of the things that you're saying that can be unintentionally harmful. Yeah. Um, you know, like, because a lot of times the things that we say just off the top of our head or off the cuff, we don't really recognize how harmful they really can be, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and can reinforce like, oh, it's not safe to come out to this person right. um, because they're not going to understand or they're not going to have the support. Um, so that's kind of the biggest thing. Um, and, and, you know, leading by example from a young age, even if they're not, you know, like going to end up coming out or going to have, you know, that experience, um, you know, like I said, just providing the exposure um, of, you know, hey, this is a community that exists and they deserve, you know, love and appreciation just like anyone else. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, with my nine-year-old sister, it was just early exposure. Yeah. But sometimes I think we have a, I don't know if it's unrealistic, but there is a fear that like, if we expose them, are they going to become that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that gets, in, gets into a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Um, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, that I could I could talk a whole a whole podcast about that itself. Um, but you know, just providing support as as you can yeah. and providing exposure, no matter whether they're going to have that experience or not. Yeah. Well, this was a great conversation. Uh, we could certainly talk a lot more than we we did today, but I know you have a client, and I want to let you out mm-hmm. so you can continue doing good things for EFR. Uh, But thank you so much, Ashley. I will include all of these resources in our show notes. And for those of you um, wanting to know kind of more of the statistics and kind of the definition by definition related to this topic, we did a webinar in June, and I will also link to that. That's on our website, EFR.org. So that's about a 30-minute webinar that Ashley did for us. And I would say that's... um, also just a great resource and overview um, uh, on this topic. And so I'll link to that for sure. But thank you so much for your time today and everything you do at EFR. And hopefully I'll see you around soon. Take care. Yeah, no, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emma